Well, I've heard it said, and you've heard it said too, I'm sure, that um, men, I mean men, I mean males, male gender, biological male gender, just to be clear, um, have a difficult time multitasking. Now, I realize that that is a stereotype that does not fit every single human male, although I will say that stereotypes are stereotypes because they generally speaking are true. Um, and so one of those difficulties of not being able to multitask as a, as a male is that we can't do two things at once and listen, have a d- difficult time. And I think most women would probably agree with what I just said, especially wives out there. So for example, and this is purely hypothetical, <laughs> I like it when people talk back to me. You're putting together a puzzle at Christmas, because that's what you do. You spend hours and hours on the kitchen table putting together a thousand-piece puzzle with your family, because it's your tradition. And you're looking for that one special puzzle piece through the hundreds and hundreds of puzzle pieces for this one little spot. And as you're looking and studying the, the, the puzzle and the pieces, your wife comes up to you and says, you know what, I think the duct from the dryer blew off the vent because it's blowing hot air and lint all over the laundry room. And you as a husband say, yeah, 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 okay, I'll take care of it. Just as you find the piece and put it into the proper place. And you're like, yes! And she says to you, did you hear what I said? You know that's happened to you, men out there. And in that split second, you have a choice to make. You can either just... Tell the truth and go, hey, I can't do two things at once. I'm sorry I did not hear you. Could you please repeat yourself? Which, honestly, that's the Christian way to do it. (laughs) But there's this other temptation because you heard some of the words to kind of tell a half-truth. Like, yeah, I heard you. And then you try to reconstruct based upon the words you remember, the sentence, and try and figure out what she actually said. And I'll tell you, how many guys, does that really work? It doesn't work, because you usually end up getting it wrong, and she says, you didn't hear what I said. Now, I just want to be clear, I am not your stereotypical male, so I don't have that problem. (laughs) That that defines me. My wife will say, yeah, you can't do two things at once and listen. Um, But in a humorous way, it's just like the difficulty of listening. And they say that we are at a time where people are so immersed in trying to express themselves through social media and other forms of communication that people are having a harder and harder time just listening. Sometimes it's because we're distracted. Other times it's because we just simply don't care what somebody has to say. Um, Or, and this is where the church oftentimes I think finds itself, is that we're so used to hearing it that it becomes kind of like white noise. And while that creates problems in human relationships, it it is especially dangerous when it comes to like hearing the voice of God in Scripture. Of hearing the voice of God in Scripture. We hear the words. We read the words. But it's really easy to be so familiar with the truth that as soon as you realize, oh yeah, that's that's what it is. It's just white noise. And that's especially dangerous to people who have been in the church for a long period of time. 
You know, when a person first comes to faith, they have a hunger and an inquisitive spirit. They're, they're just wanting to know the truth, and they're sensitive to what they're learning, and they, they want to, to conform their life to the standard of Scripture. They want to hear the voice of God, and they're listening carefully. But then what happens is that over time, it just starts, truth just starts to not penetrate anymore because we've went from listening to just hearing and it becomes white noise. And I think that's a dangerous thing. And so I just, I want to challenge you as a church this year just to make sure that you listen to the truth. A.W. Tozer said this about truths that no longer matter in a Christian's heart. He calls them dormant truths that lie on the floor of your soul. When that truth is listened to, that is, it's submitted to and it's carefully considered. It actually is combustible. It combusts into strength and passion and joy and love. But if we're not listening, it doesn't do anything anymore. And that's not a problem with the truth. It's a problem with listening. It's been a perennial problem from the beginning, and it's dressed over and over again in Scripture. For example, Isaiah, where we're going to be. But I want to just start off with chapter 40. Um, addresses this very issue. Um, God speaking to the people through Isaiah, he says, uh, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? And then he quotes them. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. There he's quoting the people like, God doesn't care about me. And then he, right after that, he says, have you not known and have you not heard? Didn't you know? Didn't you hear? And the implication of that like rhetorical question is of course you've known, and of course you've heard, because you have the book. You just stopped listening to it. And that is a fear of mine. I have to be honest. I read this constantly, I study it constantly, and I never want to be at a place where I am not listening to the Scripture. And I hope you would, like me, be fearful of hearing but not listening. So in chapter 46, I don't know if you picked up on it as Adam read, but... There are three sections of command. Two of them have to do with listening, and one has to do with remembering. And if you think about it, remembering is just listening to something you knew in the past. It's a form of listening, remembering. Three times, these commands, listen to me, house of Jacob. Just don't just hear, but listen. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. Again, remembrance is just a way of listening to the past. And then verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. So it's listen, remember, and listen. And behind each of these commands to listen, remember, and listen are truths about who God is for his people. They're in, in, intended to lift them and carry them and encourage them in a time that was very, like our time, very, very chaotic. The time that Isaiah um, prophesied, the northern tribes of Israel, if you're unfamiliar with the history of the Old Testament, the northern tribes of Israel had been decimated by the armies of the Assyrians. They were knocking on the gates of Jerusalem with threats, and there was a power rising in the northeast called Babylon that would come and pretty much destroy what was left. So it's times of political upheaval and change and chaos and catastrophe. That's where these words are found. Listen. And I think of, the, I think of us. I think of um, stuff bubbling up in the Middle East, not knowing where it's going to go. 
This is, we're going into an election year, and you and I both know it's going to be crazy. People are anxious. People are fearful. People are taking medications because they're afraid. These truths are given for God's people to hold on to about who he is, that vertical dimension. The first truth he makes, he makes by way of contrast. You know, contrasts are a good way of making points, like understand light in the background of darkness and so forth. So here you have this contrast. He contrasts himself, God, with the pagan gods of Babylon. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. Bel and Nebo. Both prominent gods in the pantheon of, of, of Babylon. And, and we know that for lots of reasons, but a lot of the kings incorporated the names of their gods into their names. So Nebuchadnezzar is Nebuchadnezzar, or Nabonidus, or Nabopolassar. They were all named after their gods. Or the king Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 4, named after or incorporating the name Bel. So these are gods. Babylonian gods, and God's basically saying, listen, they are going to stoop, they're going to bow low. That is, they are going to be utterly humiliated. And they're going to go into captivity. But the point I want you to notice, because the contrast has to do with the fact that these lifeless idols, like statues, have to be carried. They have to be carried by animals that are weary from the burden. They can't walk, they can't run, they can't ride on chariots of fire, they can't ride in the clouds, they can't teleport. They have to be carried as a, as a heavy burden, like dragging a statue with a mule or a donkey. Now contrast that. That's the pagan religion of the ancient times with now what God says of himself. Now this is who I am for you, for me. Listen, this is the first listen. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born, that's not birth-born, that's like carry, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the root womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. And all of these eyes in Hebrew after this are emphatic. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. Pagan gods have to be born Lift it up. They're burdensome. And God says, that's not me. You don't need to carry me. It's precisely the opposite. I am the one who carries you. I bear you. Over and over again. I made you. I will carry you. I will bear you. I'm the one who lifts up my people. I've been there for you. And not just once, but he says from, from, from the womb. That is from conception to old Gray hairs. It's like the entirety. I've been there. I have cared for you and carried you. This is a picture of God bearing the burdens of his people. That's, that's who he declares himself to be, is, is the bearer of burdens for his people. And, and what a, a magnificent truth to know and, more importantly, to listen to. In the middle of a, of a chaotic, oftentimes painful world of crisis and Ebb and flow is to know you got me. He's saying, I, I've been there for you. I was there when you wandered, and I disciplined you, and I brought you back. I protected you. I provided for you. 
constantly, even though you sinned against me and rebelled against me like a bad group of teenagers? And the sense is his people are a burden. Sinful, defiant people are a burden. And yet God says, I'm the burden bearer. Now that is a, that is a truth to go into the new year with. To know that God will bear your burdens, and not just the spiritual ones. I know we think that God bears the spiritual burdens of forgiving my sins and so forth, and he does. And that's really, really important. But does that mean that God does not bear the weight of caring for your physical, emotional needs too? To believe that God only cares for the spiritual but not the physical is fundamentally Gnostic, to use a second century term. And foreign to the Bible. It's like God cares for the whole person out there. He cares for the whole person of me. We know that because Jesus taught us that. He, he teaches us in Matthew chapter 6 that God's care, providential care for the creation, extends down to hairs on your head, lilies of the field, and sparrows. And then he asks, how much more valuable are, are you? And then he teaches us in the same chapter. It's like, um, give us this day our daily bread because he knows we need it. That's to say God never promised us health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. The life to come, yes, but not in this life. But he does promise to take care of us as whole beings. Look back over the past year, 2019. Was there ever a time where you didn't have access to food? I'm not talking about fasting here. That's that's a choice you make. But was there ever a time where you didn't have access to food? Ever a time where you didn't have access to water? The Bible would say that's because God was there for you. Was there ever a time where you lacked access to warmth and shelter? No, because God was there for you. People have lost jobs in this congregation and then found jobs within the same year. How did that happen? God was there for you. People lost things in fires last year and restored why? He, he was there for you. So we look back and, and realize that God has dealt bountifully with us. He's cared for us over the past year, over our past life. So why is it when we move into the present or looking at the future and there's a crisis, we're just like, oh no. Have we forgotten? Are we not listening? This is a truth to, to, to wrap your heart around constantly. It's like God is with me. He's going to care for me. He's going to care for us. He's going to provide for us. We can trust him. You do not have to shoulder the primary burden of your life. The psalmist would say, cast your burdens upon him because he cares for you. That is a picture of the Lord and his love for his people. He wants us to know. This year, 2020, I'm going to carry you just like I carried you in the past. Do you believe it? And are you listening? Or are you living in fear and anxiety, crippled by the unknown? If that's you, then it's not to guilt you, but just to say it's because you need to listen and ask the Lord to help you believe what you're hearing. Listen. Well, that's truth number one. Then he goes on to truth number two of how is God going to, you know, 
guarantee that he is going to shepherd and carry and bear. And it has to do again with a contrast with pagan idols again. And it, it picks up the idea of verses 1 and 2, but it, it elaborates on them. Those who lavish gold from the, from, from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith. So this is dealing with the process of the making of, a, of a, an idol. That is the representation of a deity. And he makes it into a god. So this is a god being made by human hands. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move. Notice it doesn't say it won't move. It can't move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. So here you have a God manufactured by human hands that people bow down and worship. And you look at this, and it just seems utterly absurd. Why would you bow down to something created by human beings? Much less something you have to lift and carry and set in place that just stands there. It can't move and it can't answer. It's, it's completely powerless, completely mute, can't speak. Just might as well pray to a nutcracker, right? Christmas nutcracker just stands there. You have to actually move it to make the mouth move, right? Just, it's absurd, powerless, and mute. Now, we don't have these kinds of idols so much anymore, but one of the reformers said that our, the human heart is an is a, is a, is a idol manufacturer. It's a, it's a factory of idols. It just doesn't always have to come in physical form. We're told that some of the idols of our culture are money and wealth, which it is. It's what people live for. Others, technology. I mean, I think some of us some people in our, our society believe that technology is going to save the world. It's going to save the planet. It's going to save us from pollution, better technology. And there's a place for technology. But when we become to, to, to depend upon it and hope on it, hope in it in a way that borders on worship. I mean, here's this little magical wonder here, this little iPhone, right? Just pretend this is a little representation of, of the God of technology, Unlike the idols of 2,700 years ago, this one actually can speak to us. You know that? <laughs> In fact, I was curious if I said, hey, Siri. Wow, didn't nobody? I was expecting somebody's phone to say something, especially my own that knows my own voice. But it'll actually talk to you. It can do things for you. It can order stuff online for you. Um, Put things in your calendar, set reminders, play music. It's like, play that song, play that funky music, white boy, and it will play that song. Right? It's just, it can do so many wonderful things. You can, it'll take you where you want to go without having a map. It's, it's wonderful. But you know what? At the end of the day, this was still manufactured by human hands. And you know what? You have to plug it in or it doesn't last over two days. And some of your phones only last like six or seven hours, depending on how old it is. It's frustrating. Then, you, 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 of course, you pay for it, either a monthly fee or you paid the eight or $900 right out of the box. And then if it falls, it can break. And if it doesn't fall and break, it becomes obsolete in three or four years. It doesn't work with the system, so you've got to do it all over again. Not to mention the fact that it has, for a lot of people, become an enslaving thing. It has created people who have ADHD who didn't have ADHD because you can't concentrate anymore. 
just, it's true. But I'll tell you what, as many things, as many things as this can do and technology can do for us, prolong life and so forth, at the end of the day, it doesn't love you. At the end of the day, it cannot take you home when you breathe your last breath. At the end of the day, it cannot command your future or secure your soul. At the end of the day, it is powerless. At the end of the day, it is mute. It can't speak the way we need to be spoken to. So this is the idols, powerless and mute. God declares of himself precisely the opposite. He is not powerless and he is not mute. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Again, he's speaking to people who aren't listening. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel for a, from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Now I don't know if you noticed but a lot of what he says here has to do with what God says. He speaks. I declare the end from the beginning. The end of history from the beginning of history. And that means everything in between. I declare it. And that's a strong word. It's not like, well, I suggest the end from the beginning. I wish the end from the beginning. It's like, no, I declare. It is God's way of saying, I command history. Not only did God's word give birth to the universe, but God's voice continues to unfold history as he wills. Again, declare, that's a, that's a word verb. My counsel shall stand. It's not my counsel will be flimsy or people might take it. It's like, no, it's going to stand. My word goes forth and it will accomplish exactly what I wish it to do, what I will it to do. At the very end, second line from the bottom, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. That's what he's calling them to remember. Remember that I declare the end from the beginning. Remember that I, I, my counsel stands. Remember that I speak things not even on the map yet, and it happens. Now, we think about God's word oftentimes as revelation, which it is. It reveals God. This, this book reveals the Lord. We think of God's word as a record of history, which it is, although I'd say it's a theological record of history. But his word, the voice of God, isn't just descriptive or revelatory. It is causative. It causes things. It's powerful. God birthed the universe with his word, and he continues to unfold history according to his word, and that's part of the point. God is declaring through these words, unlike the pagan gods who are powerless and mute, I'm powerful, and my power goes forth in my word. This is, this is a, a roundabout way of saying, I exercise absolute sovereign control over history, and I execute that plan by my power through my word. What, you know what that means? Well, let me go, let me back up. Remember this. Remember the former things of old. He's saying, remember biblical history. 
Just, just go back and be reminded of, of how I work. I've already mentioned he created the world with his word. But history unfolds according to his word too. God comes to Noah, who walked with God and listened and says, I'm going to flood the earth because it's become so corrupt and, and violent. And Noah listens, like, oh, I better trust this, and he builds an ark. And just as God said history would happen, it happened. The flood came. God spoke to Abraham, one of the great-grandchildren of Noah, and said, your descendants, 430 years from now, are going to be in a foreign land under slavery, and I will bring them out. I will deliver them. I will redeem them. 430 years ahead of time. Abraham believed the word, what God said, and it says it was counted to him to righteousness for righteousness. And four centuries later, sure enough, Egypt was brought to his knees. The prophet Isaiah would prophesy that the, the people of Israel would go into exile because of their rebellion against the Lord. And a century, century and a half later, it happened just as God said it would happen. God's word is not just a record. God's word is causative. It, it forms history. That means he's in complete control of it. Does that mean that we have no place for responsible choice? No. The Bible doesn't say that. But it tells us to trust that God has declared the end from the beginning, and we can trust that his plan, though confusing sometimes, is good and perfect and guided by wisdom. So as we enter again a new, new year, to know that whatever happens, we know that there is a God who loves us, who bears and carries us, who is sovereign over history and over our future. And what a way to testify to the world. This is a horizontal aspect. That you actually believe in the Lord by refusing to give in to fears and anxieties that the rest of the culture is experiencing times 10. It's truth he's calling to him to live by. This truth of the simple fact that God declares history, or history into existence, past, present, and future. Does that bring you any comfort at all? I just, I, I, man, when I see some of this stuff going on, I'm like, oh. And then I'm reminded, okay, this is where I gotta, this is where I plant my feet. Plant my feet in this truth. No matter what happens, I'm gonna trust the Lord. Because he's gonna carry us through. And at the end of the day, by the way, he carries us home too. When our last breath, we can trust his, his, uh, that his word commands the future. By the way, I love that line from In Christ Alone, one of the best modern hymns written, in my opinion, but where it's like, Jesus commands my, what's the next word? Destiny. He commands my future. Gosh, what a rooting truth. What a, sink your soul into that. I mean, that can combust and give you a sense of conviction and courage as we face a new year. And third, let me ask a question going into this text. Don't read it yet. Um, the question is this. So God is, declares the end from the beginning. He is the one who shapes history by his power and word, unlike the pagan idols. Um, to what end? Like, what is he doing? In particular, what is he doing for his people, chosen from the foundations of the world? This last verse tells, it where it go, tells us where it, where it goes. He says, listen to me. So, 
Point one, he bears the burdens of his people. Point two, he is the sovereign over history by his word. Three, we come to who, what he's going to do to make his people right with him. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. He's, verse 12 is establishing the status of the people. They're stubborn. They're not listening. They're not believing. They're not submitting. And they're worshiping gods that can't move. And he says, righteousness is far from you. That's a really polite way of saying, you're screwed up. You have no righteousness of your own, which is a true statement of all humanity. The status of fallen humanity is that we're spoiled, that we are tainted goods, that despite what some people say, there aren't good apples and bad apples. In God's eyes, there is none righteous, not one. That's the state. And left in that state, there's nothing but condemnation. That's the bad news. But look at the next part. I was just, I mean, this is New Testament gospel. Some 720, 30 years before Jesus arrived. It says, but I bring near my righteousness It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. Notice righteousness and salvation go together in one sentence. I am going to bring a righteousness that belongs to me for you. So you can be righteous, not because of you, but because of me. This is pure, unadulterated grace. To give to the unrighteous righteousness. So that you can be in fellowship and relationship, joyful relationship with the Lord. You have to have righteousness, but it can't come from you. To try and muster your own righteousness is about as possible as taking a rotten egg and making it fresh again. Can't happen. It just gets more rotten. But here God's saying, I'm going to come, and I'm going to bring my righteousness near. Is there... Can you think of any possible way that God can do that in human history of making sinners righteous? There's only one. You see, these, each of these truths about God really lead us directly to the Lord, lead us directly to Jesus and his cross. Who's the one who bears the burdens of his people down to the point of sin and punishment? Well, that's Christ. That's point number one. Who's the word made flesh that commands history in terms of judgment and salvation? His name is Jesus. And who is the one who brings righteousness to unrighteous people? There's only one answer to that. And that is, that is the Lord. I love what Paul says. And this is the, uh, the great substitution again that is the central of the gospel. It says, for our sake he, that is Yahweh or God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin? So the sinless one is made sin. To die for sin. So that, and the great purpose in this, in him we might become, there's that word righteous. Righteousness of God. That's the good news of God conferring upon sinners righteousness 
because of the perfect life of Jesus while he took sin, became sin, though he knew no sin on our behalf. All of these truths find their fullness in, 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 in Christ, and he is the anchor for our souls as we move forward into a, a new year to know, okay, he's going to carry me. He has in the past. He will in the future. He commands the future. He knows what's going to happen. He's, he's at some level determined it and is going to bring it all to a glorious end. And I trust that he has given me righteous. I am, I am in a new year knowing that I stand in proper, perfect relationship with Christ. That is truth worth walking in. Truth worth listening to. Do you get that? Like, listen to that again. As a believer, God has transferred his righteousness to you through Christ. Did you hear that? Or is it still like that kind of dormant truth? That dormant truth needs to combust to actually believe I stand righteous before God. That I am in the grasp of someone who cares about me and will bear me to the very end and he will take me home and somebody who's in control of my future. That to me, vertical truths to walk by, live by, and I hope that you will listen to. Amen. Lord, New Year, we don't know what you have in store for us. The highs and lows, the joys and the sorrows, the gains and the losses. We fully expect and know that whatever comes, we want to trust is from your hand. And to be able to walk in confidence, courage, and freedom and joy because of who you are. Open up our ears and hearts, O oh Lord, to take these truths each day and allow them to live, not to die, but to live in our souls. In Christ's name.